Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk for Thursday the 4th of January 2024. If it's your first time listening this year, then I wish you a happy, healthy and successful 2024. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Federal Reserve officials concluded at their last meeting in December that interest rate cuts are likely in 2024, but they gave little indication of when that may occur, according to minutes from the meeting released Wednesday. Officials expressed growing optimism that the Fed was succeeding in its quest to quell inflation, but were careful not to commit to an immediate loosening of monetary policy. The minutes showed that most Federal Reserve officials want to keep borrowing costs high for some time, adding to doubts that the US Central Bank is poised to begin cutting interest rates as early as March. US job openings fell to their lowest level in more than two years in November. The latest job openings and labour turnover survey, known as JOLTS, revealed a decline of 62,000 in US job openings to 8.79 million in November. That marks the lowest level since March 2021. It was the third consecutive month of declines in US job openings, reflecting the ongoing easing of labour market conditions. And the so-called job quits rate, which measures people who voluntarily leave their jobs as a share of total employment, touched the lowest levels since February 2021 and further indicated a calling labour market. Property transactions in Hong Kong fell to the lowest level in 33 years in 2023, according to land registry data released on Wednesday. A total of 58,035 properties changed hands in the SAR in 2023. That's a 2.7% drop compared with 2022 and the lowest figure since 1991. India's factory activity data came in below expectations for December, according to a survey by S&P Global. The Purchasing Managers Index for December hit an 18-month low of 54.9 compared to the 55.9 expected by economists. Output expanded by the least since October 2022, and new orders growth was at its lowest level in one and a half years. Foreign sales rose by the joint slowest pace in eight months. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Louis Kaus, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Joining me later in the show is Tony Nash, founder of Complete Intelligence. And if you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, US stocks logged a second straight down day, extending their declines following the release of the FOMC minutes. The S&P 500 slipped 0.8% to end at 4,705. The S&P is down for the first two days of the year for the first time since 2015 and has suffered the worst start to a year since 2019. The Dow slid 285 points, or 0.8%, finishing at 37,430. The Nasdaq Composite fell for a second session Wednesday. The Tech Heavy Index lost 1.2% to close at 14,592, marking its fourth consecutive losing day. Apple continued its 2024 decline, falling 0.8% after dropping 3.6% on Tuesday. Other members of the Magnificent Seven, including NVIDIA, Tesla and Meta, all declined on Wednesday. 
Yields on 10-year treasuries rose above 4% at one stage Wednesday for the first time since the Fed's December meeting in which it signalled three rate cuts in 2024. The yield rebounded as much as seven basis points to 4.01% after Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin didn't rule out further rate rises due to continued inflation risks. But later in the session, bond prices reversed course and rose with a 10-year yield down three basis points to 3.91%. The US dollar index touched a nearly two-week high of 102.7 before pairing some gains to settle 0.2% higher at 102.44 on Wednesday. The rally in the US dollar since the start of 2024 is the biggest start to a year since 1997. The dollar made the largest gains against the yen. US dollar Japanese yen rose 0.9% to 143 and a quarter yen per dollar. In Shanghai, the yuan was 0.1% weaker, at around 7.15 renminbi to the dollar. Gold dropped as the dollar rallied. The precious metal ended the day 0.8% lower at $2,041 an ounce. Oil prices jumped more than 3% on Wednesday as the threat of Houthi rebel attacks on container ships in the Red Sea continued to hit commodity markets. Brent crude oil settled 3.1% higher at $78.25 a barrel. Bitcoin sank Wednesday, reversing part of a recent rally that pushed the cryptocurrency to a 21-month high. Bitcoin ended the day at under $42,800, down almost 5% from its level on Tuesday. And here in Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index dropped 142 points, or 0.9%, to a one-week low of 16,646. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rose 0.2% to 2,967. And Hong Kong stocks poised to open slightly lower. The Hang Seng Index looking like it's going to start the day about 0.1% or 15 points lower at around 16,630. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Thursday morning guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Hi, good morning. And also joining us, Louis Kaus, Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Happy New Year, Louis. Good morning, Peter. Happy New Year. Thank you very much. Um, Federal Reserve officials, they concluded at their last meeting in December that interest rate cuts are likely this year, but they didn't give any indication of when that may occur, according to the minutes from the meeting that were released yesterday. Officials expressed growing optimism that the Fed was succeeding in its quest to quell inflation but were careful not to commit to an immediate loosening of monetary policy. And the minutes showed that most Federal Reserve officials want to keep borrowing costs high for some time. Um, Andrew, it seemed like there was something in every, uh, something for everyone here in this, uh, these minutes, both dovish and hawkish um, well, aspects. Yeah. Well, Peter, the last thing to do is, is to offer any, any advice to what is already an incredibly successful programme, yours, and your success also in delivering news, but perhaps you can consider putting a little section called and now for some non-news, and that is <laughs> the federal minutes. Okay, zero value added, zero news. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want to, to insult you and your client and your, and your listeners by actually making any comments. Nothing new there. You know, we, we may, we may not. Uh, perhaps it could, otherwise we won't. Okay, yeah, all right, fair enough. 
What's, what's the new? I mean, what, what am I supposed to take home to my clients? What I take home to my clients is this not to buy the U.S. market till actually the Fed cuts. Because in between, you will be playing for one year an incredibly nerve-wracking expectational game. And, you know, we can't win because we cannot guess what the Fed is going to do next. Well, let me, let me ask you more specifically, rather than asking you trying to guess what the Fed is going to do next, has the Fed won the battle against inflation? If you, if you were to listen to them, never mind what I think, you were to listen to them, no, they haven't. Because if they had won the battle against inflation, they would be cutting rates. It's terribly simple. No, they have not won the battle. Okay. Mm. According to them. Now, if you're asking me if they won the battle, you know, I'm, I'm going to do a Japan to them. What in God's name do they want? They have inflation down to 3%. They want it at 2%. An economy which is growing better than both the, uh, the European Union and the Japanese and the Chinese economy. So, you know, I want to put a New Yorkese version of a Jewish mother, enough already. What else do you want? They <laughs> <laughs> put everything. <laughs> Louis, what, what do you think? I mean, I suppose it's hard to say that the, the battle against inflation is, is ever over. But if you look at where the Fed is compared to a year ago, they, they must be pretty pleased, mustn't they? Because I think most people thought that they were going to tip the economy into a recession. They have sort of seem to have successfully navigated that. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, Peter, I agree that uh, the Fed has made really good headwinds. Why well, it's the Fed, it's not only the Fed, right? Like, the US has made really good headwinds with reducing inflation, at, uh, as, as in other places. Um, and so I agree with Andrew that the battle is not over. I guess where I, where, where for me, the biggest question marks are, or where, where I would challenge the market's narrative is that Goldilocks uh, nature of the outlook. But what I mean is that what like if things work according to our, like S&P Global Ratings scenario, then growth will slow down further, and that will consolidate the progress on inflation reduction. Then they will be able to continue to uh, then they will be able to start cutting rates, and they will be able to continue to make progress with cutting inflation. What I personally don't really think is possible, that the economy will continue to hum nicely further and inflation reduction is in the bag. So and I guess equity markets are, are, are a bit at a risk. And I guess there I would agree with Andrew in terms of what he will be telling his clients. Mm. And, and six, six rate cuts seems a bit far-fetched, doesn't it, for, for this year? That, that has always remained far-fetched. The market, I don't know why, it continues to, to run ahead of itself. There were, you know, there is some good progress, but we we do not pencil in nearly as many interest rate cuts as the market did. Mm. And unfortunately, also when this happens, when the market becomes very positive, that is actually loosening financial conditions by itself, right? If we have the long-term interest rate falling, and more generally, there is, uh, you know, uh, optimism and exuberance in the markets. That is good for the economy. So the more that the market runs ahead of itself, the harder that the job for the Fed is. Are you surprised at just how rapidly inflation has come down, though? I mean, people were surprised when it went up so quickly. And initially, it caught a lot of policymakers off guard, didn't it? Because they thought it was transitory. Um, and, and that clearly turned out to be wrong. Um, but it seems to have declined just as rapidly as it went up um, a, a couple of years ago. 
Yes, but you know that's in part because people are looking. I mean, most of the most of the discussions are for some reason about the headline data, which mm-hmm. I personally don't find very useful. We need to look at the headline data. We need to look at oil prices and things like that. But economists, good economists, look at the core rate of inflation, right, and how that is developing from month to month. So on that core inflation momentum, we've also seen good progress. But the you know the the, the change in the picture has been much less pronounced than what you get from these headline numbers, which were first boosted by a rapid increase in things like oil prices. And then we had a very flattering picture, like a picture where it looked like inflation was falling really, really fast last year. But that was because oil prices were, you know, were, were struggling. Andrew, if if we're at the point where we don't need to tighten policy anymore, unless um, there turns uh, turns out to be some sort of upside surprise um, to inflation this year, um, what are the criteria for for, for cutting um, rates? How, how how do you decide, you know, when when you should start doing this, and how far um, you need to go to start reducing rates? Now, I, I, Peter, I will not take this as a personal question because. Thank God is I don't get paid to advise the Fed when and how to cut interest rates. Okay, so if you're asking me how the Fed should be doing that, I imagine, okay, is this, that's not at all my, my, my vision of that. I imagine if they see a series of 3% over the next six months and they say, yeah, this is, this is settled there. So it's unlikely to surprise us on the upside and therefore we begin to cut interest rates. Okay. Uh, my reaction to all this is, is how a decrease in interest rates could possibly affect which sectors of the economy that would push prices up. And uh, as uh, my good friend here has also said, it's very important to understand what were the reasons that inflation went up. And this was delightfully quaint. Remember the, the prices of second-hand cars used to be an important <laughs> driver of this inflation. Mm. We think mm. here in utter puzzlement, okay, as to what runs this, this enormous economy. So my, my answer to that will be, it has to be a series of at least half a year of inflation which is stuck at 3% and it ain't more. Well, all right, that's, that's good enough for me. So then that's not going to be March, is it? It's not like the markets are pretty no, well expecting not. March. I'm looking, I'm, looking at around, uh, I'm looking at around summer. And even then, I do an unbelievably crude calculation. You know, Mickey Mouse is off trademark. Is uh, the, the copyright on trade on copy on uh, on Mickey Mouse has just been lifted? Mm. Okay, which I'm delighted because my economics are all completely uh, Mickey Mouse. So I have no problem whatsoever if the next statement is not trademarked anymore. All right, and that is inflation. Okay, interest rates are about five and a half percent roughly. Okay, the economy is growing at about two and a half percent. So real interest rates should be around two and a half percent. Subtract about two to two and a half percent from five, and you get about two. So this will be my expected cuts starting from summer onwards. Okay, perhaps let's say about 200, 250 basis points. Ta-da! Okay, L- Louis. If if we get to if we get to March and inflation is still around sort of current levels or declining further, surely that will be a green light, wouldn't it, to the to the Fed? You know, I think the Fed will actually, I think they have even people, uh, uh, senior, senior Fed people have said that they won't wait, right? They they are supposed to set their 
in, uh, interest rate in line with the forecast for inflation, uh, that's very hard and that forecast changes all the time. Um, but it would be silly for them to wait uh, and, and, and respond only to actual inflation. So I think as long as the forecast continues to the forecast for inflation to continue to come down, as long as that is being firmed up, they will be able to start cutting. But no, not not in March. We expect that to happen. You know, broadly, uh, uh, similar ideas, but uh, Andrew has. Uh, we expect that to start happening at around the half of the year. Mm. Uh, Andrew, um, what do you make of the US economy? The, the consensus at the beginning of 2023 20, uh, was that the US economy was going to fall into recession. And that consensus obviously was completely wrong. Um, you know, it, it didn't fall into recession. And now um, the consensus seems to be that the US is going to avoid a recession. But maybe is that consensus also likely to turn out to be wrong? Because if you look at the data, um, the, the labour market is clearly cooling, um, isn't it? Manufacturing activity has been in contraction now for for a while are there signs that maybe actually all that we're going to see is the u.s economy is going to fall into recession but just maybe a year later than people thought yeah actually i'm a i'm an existentialist cowardly economist what on earth is that <laughs> behind data okay recession data i'm sorry i'm fed up i know i've, I've been buzzing your ears with that recession Defined recession is not what I define, and that is perhaps the economy slows down or because uh, the GDP growth rate uh, annualized or whatever has actually declined. Recession is two consecutive quarter, uh, quarterly GDP rates back-to-back negative. Well, yeah. that ain't going to happen. So in other words, the American economy is not going to go into what we define a recession. Are we likely to get a GDP growth either yearly or quarterly annualized or whatever coming down as opposed to going up like the third one we had was was absolutely spectacular? The answer is quite probably. But a recession in the way everybody defines it, no. Now, if you, sorry, I mean that uh, in a hypothetical manner, if you define the recession, perhaps two GDP growth rates that actually falling down every three months, well, that's not that's not mm-hmm. recession the way it has been defined. And if it's not defined like that, then recession means, you know, Alice in Wonderland. Words mean what I want them to mean. But but sentiments is people seem in in the states to be particularly gloomy, don't they, about the the economy? Even though actually the economy is doing pretty well compared to um, elsewhere in the world, it, it, people don't seem to feel it. Yeah, and the, unfortunately, the only thing I distrust so fundamentally much, people saying, well, you know, there is a gloomy outlook. The only really quantitative measures is, is the purchasing managers indexes, you know, the Kaixin and the, uh, uh, and the CLPFs and so on. And, of course, the one in the States, which was the grandfather of them all. And these are simply the number of people that are saying, Things are better versus a number of people saying that things are worse. Divide the two, and if it's over 50, things are looking better. And that's the end of the story. And at least the manufacturing side of that in the States have been telling us that for 14 months now, the number is below 50. Okay, it has not been going up. So presumably, people are gloomy. Mm. I mean, being gloomy for a year and a half, it's a very, very long time to be gloomy. <laughs> I mistrust that. Okay. <laughs> 
Louis, I, I, one of the problems is that even though inflation now is slowing, the, the, the problem is that people compare prices now to a sort of a point in time that, that's important, maybe a year ago or to before the COVID crisis. And as far as they're concerned, things have gone up a lot across all the things that they need to be buying. Is this one of the reasons why um, maybe you know consumers remain sort of gloomy and, and remain not particularly confident about the economy because there is still this cost of living crisis for many people, isn't there? Despite the fact uh, that inflation is slowing, prices are still much higher than they were a year or so ago. Yeah, uh, you know, I think I I have some sympathy for what Andrew was saying. We can analyze the data. We can tell people that actually there's it for most people in the U.S. The situation actually didn't get much worse last year. It improved, but you know, I cannot convince them that they that they shouldn't feel so bad. I it's hard to say why people uh, are gloomy. And actually, I'm not even sure. Like because uh, definitely consumed. I mean, retail sales outperformed expectations at the end of last year. Um, I don't have the latest consumer confidence numbers in front of me. I um, think they are, you know, they weakened somewhat, but are not disastrous, if I mm. recall. Um, it is, you know, I don't know to what extent politics come into play over there. And, but, you know, just coming back to the data, um, we expect a pretty weak 2024 in terms of growth, uh, like very, very little growth in the beginning of the year. Um, yeah, so, you know, um, th- that's telling you something. Okay, well, let's switch to China because we have had data out of China as well. First of all, we had the official um, purchasing managers index that fell to 49 in December from 49.4 in the other uh, prior month, third straight month of contraction in factory activity. New orders at home and abroad slumped deeper into contraction. However, the Kaishin survey, which measures uh, smaller companies, but in the in the private sector, uh, that did improve. I um, mean, in contrast to what we were seeing in some of the state-owned um, sort of enterprises. Um, as as we come into twenty twenty four, Louis, where, where do you see the the Chinese economy? I would like to make one correction with regard to what Andrew is saying. Um, the you know the US has been doing better than Europe and Japan. But it has not been doing better than China. I know China gets a lot of bad rep these days internationally, but the Chinese economy grew significantly faster than all of the other large economies barring India, right? Um, so, you know, uh, confidence remains pretty weak, especially as it regards the housing sector. You know, the real estate downturn continues to be the, the one remaining, uh, the, 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 the largest a headwind for the Chinese economy. China, of course, as should not be a surprise, is also suffering from that global weakness in manufacturing. Right, and mm-hmm. there are if you if you if you track say the Chinese manufacturing PMI, you'll see that it won't differ a lot from what's happening in other places. This is a global phenomenon. Um, in China, the service sector is still growing not nearly growing as fast as it used to. And China does have issues. And the longer that the government remains reluctant to, you know, really open the taps in terms of uh, boosting the economy, the more that we will get used to, you know, uh, a rate of growth that is somewhere between four and a half and five percent rather than six or seven or eight. 
And that's that's the that, that's the outlook for China. So is there something wrong? I mean, you know, if, as you say, the, the economy is growing at a clip of what, about 5% um, on, a, on an annualized basis. Why so much angst about the Chinese economy overall? And, you know, these constant clarion calls for more stimulus from the, uh, from the government when, you know, as you say, it's doing quite well. You know, I, I don't want to say doing quite well, right? Because we have a terrible housing market and confidence both among consumers and among business people, is, is, is pretty weak. Uh, so, you know, why are people unhappy? I think, you know, there is still rightfully so uncertainty and worry about the government policy. We just had something 10 days ago, right, again, where it looked like there wasn't going to be another clampdown on the on the gaming industry, which really took people, uh, really surprised people. And, you know, there are, worries about the labor market so confidence is an issue um and i think yeah there is an issue of expectation management we still i think the international community still is not used to the idea of china you know going to grow by four and a half five percent i don't know why people continue to expect so much more Andrew, Andrew, what are, what are your thoughts here? Is one of the problems of the Chinese economy the mixed messages that we're getting from the government about what their priorities are? As, as, as uh, Louis just mentioned, we had once again, after talking about growth was the top priority, we suddenly have these new restrictions on the gaming um, sector. We seem to be getting a lot of mixed messages from Beijing, don't we? Well, you know, far be it for me to, to, to even begin to claim that I've got a, a complete insight as to the different balancing acts that the policymaking uh, makers and uh, their policymakers are doing, there are, as uh, as as Lou said, there is the very important issue of the property sector, and I'm always obsessed with the index for the 40 cities. Okay, new prices, sorry, prices of newly produced and sold homes that they have been falling now for 19 months. Not uh, falling; uh, they went from five to ten to three. They have actually been shrinking. For, for 14 months, for 18, 19 months to be specific. Okay, so this is this is this is really hugely important for the individual people, and of course, add up to that the issue of the bankruptcy or the balance sheet problems of the major construction companies, and of course, the whole thing feels uh, feels very uncertain. And uh, much as the Chinese policymakers like to feel they're in command. At the same time, very frequently, they don't like to over-interfere. That sounds very peculiar, because we have been told that the fiscal deficit of about 3.4% of GDP, it's perfectly all right, and it can increase. But we haven't seen any sign of this happening. Okay, so in other words, first they tell us, it's okay to spend more money, and then they don't. Then remember, Peter, the famous 30 or 31 individual measures that they were going to be Mm. (laughs) produced and brought forward, well, Effectively, there have been odds and little bits and pieces on the property side, on mortgage side, and of course, increasing the liquidity of the People's Bank of China without necessarily cutting interest rates. And if interest rates are cut, they are cut by three or four or five basis points, which is perfectly all right when you have an inflation which is less than 10 basis points. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I don't expect them to have and cut interest rates by, by, by 30 basis points or 50 basis points. They can't. So it is, it is a mixture of both uh, their potential unwillingness uh, to be appearing to manipulate and at the same time their desire to do so.
Mm. L- Louis, and, what... hence, and hence, sorry, and hence orders rather than uh, than uh, market measures. Okay, don't sell too many, too many, too, too many games. Uh, don't sell houses at uh, too high prices. I mean, this kind of uh, this kind of approach. Louis, what's the chances of a policy pivot being the surprise for uh, for this year in in China? We've got the third plenum coming up. Do you think there's a chance that the government's going to send out some clear signals that it wants to support the economy, wants to support the private sector, uh, maybe develop some sort of plan uh, for for bailing out uh, some of the property developers? Could that be the surprise of 2024? Is that going to be too much to hope for? Peter, it sounds like you have inside information because I'm sure that language will appear in the policy documents. The question, of course, is what will actually happen on the ground in terms of policy making, right? Of course, they'll say that they'll support the private sector. Mm-hmm. They say that they support the economy. Will there be a significant easing of macro policy? No, I agree with Andrew. It's unlikely. There's not a lot of room on the monetary side and there's not a lot of willingness on the fiscal side. So, you know, and. So I don't worry so much about the overall rate of growth in China, our our forecast for that. What I worry about more is that the Chinese authorities seem to be still unwilling to make a big, to make good progress with the rebalancing of the pattern of growth. The growth that we see in China is still much more supply-side oriented than demand-side oriented. If you look at the Chinese economy, the big weakness is the supply is always running ahead of demand. We need changes in the policy setting to rectify that. At, you know, in the last six, nine months, the, the messaging from, from policymakers has been the other way around. There's still a lot of emphasis on upgrading the manufacturing sector, all kinds of investment, uh, uh, you know, a lot of attention for investment. There is, there is talk at times about we need to stimulate consumption, but there are not a lot of policy measures underlying that. And so for me, the big worry is that there's still unbalanced pattern of growth with, with demand struggling to catch up with supply, that that will remain the picture for 2024. And that means continued downward pressure on prices and on margins. And, and presumably, as long as the government keeps on trying to juice growth by uh, infrastructure spending, by spending in the manufacturing sector, that detracts anyway, doesn't it, from, from the consumer? Because it, in some ways, it is a transfer of wealth, isn't it, from the consumer to other parts of the economy. And that could be wasteful parts of the economy. There's no guarantee that investing in some of these manufacturing areas is, is going to produce results. Well, no, well, it- it will produce short-term growth, right? It will produce growth this quarter, uh, whatever the long-term consequences are. Sorry, Andrew. No, no. The, the, the answer to that is, uh, yes, I agree with you. And that's why uh, it was very interesting to see the absolute horror by which quietly Jap- uh, Chinese policymakers uh, pushed aside notions that China should do what Hong Kong did and what Singapore did. And that is send their citizens checks, mm-hmm. money on which uh, they can go ahead and spend it, okay, in whichever they, way they want. I think they were they were quietly horrified with the idea. So this this very active thing. I'm not criticizing this. I'm saying I'm simply observing what they do. They they interfere in inverted commas in terms of suggestions for action, and very strangely enough, they have very 
inactive monetary and fiscal policy. Mm. I mean, fiscal policy can go complete gangbusters in China because first, they are net creditors to the world, so they can't do in Argentina or Russia, even if they tried, okay? And then all their domestic, all their borrowing is domestic borrowing. Mm. Okay, it's perfectly okay. They can go ahead and borrow a hell of a lot more and the government can proceed to spend it, for example, in writing checks for their citizens, but that's not going to happen. So putting this all together, let me just finally ask you about the outlook for uh, for Hong Kong and Chinese stocks. Then, if if we're not going to see a, a major change um, in in the in a rebalancing of the economy and in the the government's approach, um, what does this mean for for example for Hong Kong stocks, which are now down five out of the past six years? Well, very briefly, three points: uh, the Hong Kong stocks are not going to receive any boost till the Americans cut interest rates. So back we are to the Americans, and therefore. I tell my clients, can we please forget about Hong Kong stocks till the Americans cut interest rates? When they cut, by all means, buy. But don't out-guess by buying Hong Kong stocks on the basis that Americans are going to cut interest rates and therefore Hong Kong stocks are going to benefit. You know, Hong Kong market was, it is now nearly the seventh year of a downfall. Okay, and there is reasons for that, point number one. Point number two is, of course, the property sector in Hong Kong. And yon, yon, Peter, the property sector in Hong Kong will go back again to interest rates. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the potential interrelationship between that and the property sector in China. And the third point, it is confidence. It is all the issues concerning politics, concerning changes in style and so on, which cannot be measured, but possibly can be observed. Also, it's very interesting that tourism in Hong Kong is apparently taking a reverse step. Uh, masses of Chinese going, of Hong Kongese people going overseas, as opposed to overseas people coming at home. Tourism as it is right now in Hong Kong, okay, taking the most recent figures from the tourist board, which were in November, it will work out at approximately 30 million visitors for this year. Well, that's half of what it used to happen before COVID, when it used to be regularly, it used to be 58, 62, 65, 57, okay, it used to be nearly double that. And, you know, I cannot possibly blame the policymakers for that or blame the Fed for that. This is absurd. It's completely an unfair criticism on uh, John Lee and, and his government. But I mean, he can do a lot of things, but he can't possibly double the amount of people visiting Hong Kong. Mm, particularly when they want to go the other way and actually yeah, spend their weekends in Shenzhen. It is, it is unfair, and I don't produce it gleefully. See, you know, tourism in Hong Kong is doing badly. He can't cut interest rates because we have the Fed. Mm. Okay, so there is a degree of, uh, of restriction. Louis, final thoughts from you then. I mean, the backdrop from, from what you've said about uh, the economic outlook in China and also when we're talking about Fed rates, not looking great for Hong Kong, is it? No, the short-term outlook looks challenging. The only positive thing for me is that we talked about the the plan. If they haven't, you know, this clampdown, this additional clampdown on the video gaming industry was only a proposal, right? And the senior official responsible for that has actually lost his job. That <laughs> is actually a good thing. That that is a good sign. I I do think that the, that the Beijing authorities would like to be seen as in support of the economy, in support of the market, and hopefully, the longer that we can be in a situation where the market is starting to buy into that story, that may help a little bit. You know, these uh, maybe the, the, the tech sector, some of these heavyweights that are also active, that are you know that are being traded in. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it's going to be a challenging first half of the month of the, of the year. 
Okay, well, thank you both very much. Great to hear your thoughts this morning. You heard there Louis Coyce, who is Chief Asia Economist at S&P Global Ratings. Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. I'm joined now by Tony Nash, who is founder of Complete Intelligence over in Texas in the USA. Very good morning, Tony. Happy New Year to you. Hi, Peter. Happy New Year. Thank you. Um, looking forward to 2024. Um, lots of things to, uh, to to talk about, but I think one of the things that's going to be interesting is um, elections. This year is going to be dominated by um, elections in a way in which we haven't seen before. Eight of the 10 most populous countries in the world um, are going to hold um, elections, more than 70 countries, about 2 billion people, half the adult population of the globe is going to have the chance to vote uh, in 2024. It's a record for uh, for one year. This is going to be pretty important, isn't it? And we've got some pretty significant ones, maybe starting with one in just a few days' time in Taiwan. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting year. Um, and the Taiwan election is also very interesting um, with the DPP KMT and, and some other things happening there. I think it'll be interesting to see who, if there's a clear winner and who it is. Uh, it's also interesting to see the mainland's uh, discussion around the Taiwan election, too, uh, which they do this every election, right? So mm. here in the U.S., there's a lot made about um, the mainland discussion around Taiwan. Um, but this is something that we see every election cycle. Um, it seems to be, though, the rhetoric seems to be ratcheting up this time, doesn't it? Because this is going to be now, um, if the DPP wins, the Democratic uh, Democratic Progressive Party, it's going to be their third victory in a row, really broke the stranglehold that the KMT used to have on um, elections in Taiwan. So it feels like this one in particular is going to be very significant and is going to have some implications for uh, for markets as well, as, as well, of course, as relations between Taiwan and China mainland China. Yeah, it, it could be significant. I, I, I don't necessarily get the sense that the DPP is as um, kind of uh, polar opposite of, say, KMT nationalism as they have been in the past. I think the DPP has moderated just a little bit. Of course, they don't want unification, but they've moderated just a little bit. I think they've they've come a little bit more to the center. And so I think that's why they're appealing and that's why it's possible that they have a third term. I think it makes the mainland uh, a little bit uncomfortable. But, you know, again, I think this is not something that is completely unique, although it's ratcheting up. The other thing to remember, and I know your your listeners in Asia will know this, but Taiwan has really only had direct elections since the 1990s. Mm. And so, you know, we hear a lot about um, kind of the democracy in Taiwan versus uh, the mainland, but there really hasn't been direct elections uh, for more than 30 years. So it's really interesting to see how Taiwan has really gravitated to that and how they do elections incredibly well. I mean, these these are proper democratic elections, aren't they? Unlike maybe yep. in some of the countries that are going to hold elections this year, where it's either already a foregone right. conclusion. Or, or do, do you get the feeling, though, that maybe there is a bit of a recession going on in, in democracies around the world, that maybe um, there's this spreading sort of illiberalism and, and a weakening of democracy um, around the world? Um, well, I think a couple of factors have played into that. I think... Um, uh, you know, the the economic success that we've seen in the mainland over the last 30 years has really contributed to 
uh, say, I would say maybe an academic and maybe media and other, say, political institutional view that may be a less liberal approach. And we could we could even look at Singapore, where people look at a potentially less liberal approach as mm-hmm. one that maybe gets more economic success. At least that's some of the perception. Um I don't necessarily think that democracy is weakening, but I do think that those ideas um, does a less liberal governance allow more, say, success or economic success or um, I think a central government strategy. uh, People complain a lot here in the U.S. about the U.S. not having a strategy. Um, I think illiberalism lends itself to having a central strategy. I think one of the other contributing factors is uh, the pandemic, quite frankly. I mean, I think um, a lot of social liberties were taken away from people for a period of time. And it's I think it's driven a lot of maybe thought and or paranoia about growing illiberalism. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking maybe uh, one, one example this year is going to be India. Obviously, elections uh, coming up in, in India as well. Um, that seems to be one country where there does seem to be a weakening of, of sort of democratic institutions, despite the fact that, you know, this is still the biggest democracy in the world. Yeah, it is. It is a big democracy. The BJP is very, very popular. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens in India, because we do have a very vocal media in India. We have a very vocal population. And so I think as there are or if there are issues around the elections, I think we'll hear about them. And I I don't think people will be quiet about it. Mm. And then, of course, um, we have some other key elections going on um, around the world as well. I mean, one of the, one of the things that um, I, I'm wondering is about young people. I mean, they're a key voting group in many of these elections, probably in all of these elections that, that, are, that are going on. Do you get the feeling that maybe young people are becoming more disengaged? They just don't feel that democracy is working for them, that elections are making any big difference for them, which is why we're seeing maybe some of these um, sort of radical um, leaders win, populist leaders win in places such as Argentina? Well, I don't know. I, you know, so here in the US, you know, we have the the boomers, Gen X, millennials, and then Gen Z. Um, I have I have three kids that are Gen Z, and I find them the discussions that they have about politics are pretty informed. I wouldn't say very informed, but pretty informed. Um their friends who talk about politics, they're pretty informed. Again, they're getting a lot from social media, but I think they do have the opportunity to dig into issues. Um, and so, you know, I think there's there's a there's always an observation from older generations that kind of younger people don't care as much about politics. But the fact is they're not paying as as much in taxes. They may or may not own property. They may or may not have fa- have kids attending a school, so they just may not be as interested in in some of those, particularly some of those local issues, right? Um, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say that um, uh, that we're that we're seeing. Uh, I would say more extreme candidates because of say the Gen Z uh, population. I think it, it's it's a balance of say here in the U.S. It's a balance of baby boomers. And and when we look at the disposable income that people can put toward campaigns here in the U.S., it's really overwhelmingly the baby boomers who lend to campaigns that then 
uh, become extreme. So I don't know what it looks like in other countries, but I know that the level of disposable income and the giving to campaigns here in the U.S. is largely done by baby boomers. And when your kids discuss elections, do they feel that the outcome is likely to make any difference to them personally, to their livelihoods, to their chances of getting um, a better job or a higher paying job? You know, I think uh, potentially, yes, I, I think they do. Uh, one of the things here in the U.S., obviously, we have local elections and then we have state elections and then we have national elections. The national elections are what gets most of the attention. But the things that have the most uh, the the races that have the most to do with them getting jobs really are the local and state elections. Mm-hmm. Is a state more appealing economically or is there regulation locally? These sorts of things. So. Um, But they're paying more attention to the national elections, of course, because that's what's in media. Um, But, uh, you know, I think they find the local elections pretty boring, quite frankly. And so they are paying attention to the national elections. And I think they do see that as as an opportunity for them. Um, Again, they're not incredibly well informed, uh, but I think they do see the national elections in terms of social policy and economic policy as something that will impact their lives. And of course, we've we've got to mention the U.S. election coming up in in November. Um, do we have any sense of what a, a potential Trump presidency is going to look like? Uh, <laughs> that's a big assumption, Peter. Um, uh, you know, I I don't know. Um, I I think there is more of a competition on the Republican side than we're led to believe. Um, I don't know. I, you know, it's probably going to be Trump, but I think it's it's possible that there is a different candidate. I don't know exactly who it would be. Um, but I think there's more of a competition on the Republican side than uh, than some of the polls today are showing, because what we're seeing are a lot of national polls. Uh, and we don't necessarily vote nationally in the U.S. We vote at a state level, which awards um, representatives who vote uh, proportionally uh, to the number, number of representatives that we have in the states. So um, so I think it'll be more of a contest than we're led to believe. Now, if Trump is elected, you know, I'm not really sure because the last time around, he was not a great administrator. Um, he definitely speaks from the bully pulpit, but he's not a great administrator. And I think many people who are, say, uh, middle aged or younger in the U.S. look at the current President Biden and they look at Trump as a potential candidate and they're both 80 years old give mm-hmm. or take. And mm-hmm. I think the concern from a, a lot of voters is they want a president who has to live with the consequences of their own policies. So I think Americans are looking at these older candidates who are at the extreme end of, you know, uh, electable and saying, look, these guys, I'm not really sure that that they should govern because they're really too old to live with the consequences of their policies. And so that's why I think we may see more of a contest on the Republican side than we're being led to believe right now. I mean, the, the, on the Republicans, I mean, there are candidates, aren't there, who are quite considerably younger than, than Trump who could uh, present an alternative. I'm thinking of people like Nikki, uh, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis. They're all um, sort of candidates who, who would have to live with the consequences of, of their decisions. 
That's right. And so until we start seeing some of the primaries come in with Iowa, New Hampshire, and some of these early primaries, I don't know that we'll necessarily understand what people on the ground are thinking. And let's say, for example, Trump doesn't win Iowa. Well, we'll hear, well, Iowa's not really important. And then if he doesn't win New Hampshire, we'll hear him say that, well, New Hampshire is not really important, you know, these sorts of things. So, Mm. But I do believe that as we start to see some of these early primaries come in, other Americans will get a view of what those early voters are thinking, because these candidates have spent a lot of time on the ground in Iowa, in New Hampshire and other places. Um, And so they're really reflective or starting to reflect what some of these people on the ground are hearing and seeing. And if Trump were to win, I mean, the way he's talking at the moment, it it sounds like his presidency is going to be quite a a vindictive one. It's going to be about taking revenge on all the people he feels have have slighted him over the the last sort of four years or so. Yeah, I think, you know, it's really interesting to see the the mood in 2016 was very different from what it is now. And the mood in 2016 was that people just wanted to see some sort of change. They felt like their voice wasn't heard. Uh, at least this was on the Republican side, right? They, they really wanted to see change. I think Trump today is an angrier candidate and a more vindictive candidate than he was in 2016. In 2016, he came across as as frustrated but constructive. He now comes across as vindictive and angry. And I don't know how many people that's going to appeal to. I know there are a lot of frustrated voters, but I'm not really sure that having that angry of a message can really attract the voters that he needs. Mm. And he's also coming across as being fairly illiberal as well. He's going to tear down uh, some democratic institutions that have been around for a long time and and doesn't seem to to respect um, some of those institutions. Well, we'll see. I mean, does he have the power to do that? Who knows, right? I mean, we see a lot. We've seen a lot of, say, directive government from the executive office. We saw it under Obama. We saw it under Trump. We see it under Biden, where these things are then taken to uh, the federal courts and they're struck down. So Mm. can he actually disassemble some of those institutions? I, I think it would be really hard. Well, look, Tony, it's going to be a fascinating year. I look forward to talking to you more about some of these issues um, as the year um, develops. As we said, Taiwan's elections coming up in just a, a few days' um, time. So thank you very much for your contribution this morning. Have a happy new year. Look forward to speaking thank to you, you Peter. again Thank you, Peter. Happy soon. new year. That's Tony thank Nash, you. who is the founder of Complete Intelligence. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. Do please take a look at my newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com for more information on developments during the Asian trading day. I'll be back tomorrow with the final Money Talk of the week when I'll be joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Alex Frew McMillan, a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com. With a view from Australia and New Zealand is Mike Gibbs-Harris, who is director of MGH Asset Management in Wellington, New Zealand. Have a great day. Money Talk. Talk. 